Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion. That USDA program, it's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. Hello, listeners. Today is Thursday, May 25th, 2017. I'm Scott Bland, your host, and you are listening to Politico's Nerdcast. We're going to start off today with the big politics news of this week. The Montana special house election that we were talking about last week came to a stunning conclusion on Thursday. We stayed up all night watching the results and have a lot to say about that. And also about the fact that the Republican candidate, Greg Gianforte, was charged with assault for attacking a reporter less than 24 hours before Election Day. We've also been watching President Donald Trump's first foreign trip very closely, and we'll talk a bit about what he's accomplished and what that all means. And also, while Trump was out of the country, his administration released a budget that even Republicans on Capitol Hill are either condemning or ignoring. That's in addition to the... uh, long-awaited Congressional Budget Office report on the GOP health care plan. So we will talk all about what's in that fiscal blueprint and some other budget news on this week's Nerdcast. A couple quick housekeeping notes before we really get going. Remember, please email us your questions if you have them to nerdcast at politico.com. Remember to subscribe, rate us, and write written reviews of the Nerdcast on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. And we want to spread the word about the Nerdcast and grow with more listeners into an even better show. So if you have a few minutes, take a survey that we've created for our podcast listeners. It's politico.com slash podcast survey. It's going to help us create even better podcasts and improve the ones we've got. Remember, that's politico.com slash podcast survey. All right, we're doing something a little different than usual at the top of the show this week. Uh, It is midnight in the Politico offices. I'm on the phone with Elena Schneider. Hi, Elena. Hey, Scott. And we are talking about the Montana special election, the returns for which are still coming in right now. But we do have a data point to bring you. It is 50%. And that's where Republican Greg Gianforte is standing right now. Now, the race has not been called as of 12.02 a.m. as we are talking. But it looks at this point, barring something really, really surprising. Uh, Fortunately, we're taping now, so... (laughs) We'll see what happens. But barring something really surprising, it looks like Greg Gianforte is going to be a member of Congress from Montana in this big special election. Elena, walk us through what happened here. Well, uh, look, we had about, uh, you know, half to two-thirds of the early vote had been cast before we had sort of a pretty uh, remarkable and um, a little worrisome incident happen out there in Montana about 24 hours ago. Greg Gianforte uh, was, was uh, you know, was accused and has subsequently been charged for this um, assault on a reporter, this Guardian reporter, Ben Jacobs. And um, that happened on election night eve. So it didn't have, at the end of the day, as much of an electoral impact as it might have happened if if it was a week ago, um, but we certainly are, are looking at results that that presents as if Greg Joint Forte is going to be the next congressman from Montana. Now, apart from the 
alleged assault. Um, this is not a result that would have surprised us. I mean, maybe, maybe it still doesn't surprise us. I don't know. It, but but Gianforte has been favored this whole time, right? Right, exactly. I mean, he's had he started out a month ago with a double-digit lead. This is a place where Republicans have comfortably held the House seat since the early 90s. This is not supposed to be a place where Democrats are go- are supposed to have a competitive race. So it wasn't really until the final week that we started to hear some nervousness from Republicans who are looking at some polling who said, okay, it's it's tightening a little bit. We see some single digits here. You know, the gap between these two appears to be closing. People were attributing it to all kinds of things, some to Gianforte's sort of complicated history uh, on on uh, suing the state of Montana over access to a stream on his ranch, which kicks up this sort of public lands dispute that's really hits home with a lot of Montana voters. So some Republicans were attributing the tightening of the race to that. Others were saying that Quist renewed focus on health care and the Republican health care plan and what that might do to rural hospitals and to Montana to Montana voters had an effect on, on tightening the race. But right, I mean, it, we weren't expecting this to be a place where, where Quist would win. That would have been a pretty shocking, if not impossible, result here. Well, but, but doesn't, the fact that we... Don't, doesn't, don't Democrats in Montana have a like pretty solid history of winning some important races? The you know John Tester, the senator, is uh, a Democrat has been elected twice. Uh, Gianforte just lost the governor's race in, in 2016 to a Democrat. Yeah, absolutely. You're totally right. There are definitely Democrats who have been able to thread the needle in this state, who have been able to convince people that they are truly Montana, that they are interested and only care about what Montanans care about. And they want to do that as Democrats. So these are people, though, who have really strong personal brands. And that's not to say they didn't have to build it. I mean, Quist clearly needed to to build and introduce himself. He was a first time candidate and he could have. But he came in with his own baggage. Right. He was not somebody who was properly vetted through a normal primary process because this is a special election. So he was elected by 120 or so delegates from the Democratic Party who chose him to represent them in this general election. And over the course of this race, all kinds of different problematic stories came about, came out about Quist, who, you know, to be fair, has never been a politician before and therefore hasn't necessarily had to worry about what his past sort of reflected on him. He had all kinds of financial problems, which was pretty difficult for him had some sort of weird stories about performing in nudist colonies, which, uh, you know, who knows whether that made an impact. But, you know, he was not this per- sort of perfect, like, tester kind of candidate who is, you know, who flies back to to farm his ranch every single weekend from D.C. So it's not to say that it's not possible for him to thread the needle, but in a, in a, in a special election, in a federal House race that that has tended to be more Republican, it seemed likely that a Republican would hold on to this seat. And in addition to all those factors that you just pointed out that uh, Quist has been facing attacks on, um, there's also, we're seeing, once again, not just in Montana, but in some other special elections around the country, Republicans leaning on uh, an old favorite of theirs. Nancy Pelosi is turning up as a boogeyman in uh, ad TV Boogie woman, ad, I believe, is what she prefers. T- Touche. Um, <laughs> in, in ad after ad after ad around the country. And I, this the, and this this played 
particularly in Montana, where you had groups like the NRCC and Congressional Leadership Fund, the big Republican super PAC, just hammering away at not only Quist's personal life, but kind of painting him as as too liberal for the state, as not Montana enough the way that John Tester has been, say, for Democrats. Right. So there's nothing more uh, problematic for a candidate in a place like Montana, which really holds on to this sort of independent, rugged, uh, Western pioneer spirit sort of streak that they have going there, which is to make Montana centric as opposed to partisan centric. And a person like Nancy Pelosi, who represents all of the sort of partisan liberal values that they just really do not are not interested in, can prove to be effective and certainly prove to be effective in painting Quist with that brush. Whether or not those sorts of things continue to work um, across the country it remains to be seen at this point. But we're certainly seeing them try to deploy that that tactic both here in Montana and in Georgia. What What's your big takeaway from this election result? Um, and I know we've talked before about how special elections are better at uh, raising questions than at answering them. But we've, we've got some other special elections on the horizon. We've got Georgia coming up next month. Um, what, what have we learned from this? I think we've learned that in a place like Montana, where Trump won by 20 points six months ago, he is still popular. Gianforte made Trump and Trump surrogates, uh, Vice President uh, Mike Pence, Donald Trump Jr. all appeared on the stump for him several times in, in Donald Trump Jr.'s case. And, and he wrapped himself in that banner. So I, I think that there is clearly some evidence that in places where Trump's base you know, in Trump's base, that he is still popular. He's, they're still willing to support people who want to back the president's agenda. Whether or not that carries into 2018, as you say, it raises more questions than that necessarily answers. But as of right now, that's what we saw in, in Montana. That's at least one way to look at it. Another way to look at it is that we had, uh, you know, candidates who both parties really disliked. They were not both sides by the end of it were, were coming to us and, and seriously complaining about the quality of the candidates that they ended up with here. And we're talking professional felt, uh, operatives, not voters so much, but like right. the professional operatives in both parties. Right. Well, and actually, even on the ground from some from some voters. Who oh, interesting. We're sort of we're sort of bummed out that they you know, there were people who talked to me who said they wish they had seen Amanda Curtis, who had run back in 2014 that she that you know they wish she had you know was able to get through that nomination process on the democratic side so you know i think that people were not necessarily thrilled about the kinds of candidates who ended up emerging on top here who came through the nomination process and they both had serious baggage on both sides so in some ways we kind of saw a a a lesser of two evils or a you know a better of worse options here that maybe Montana voters overall weren't pleased. I think what will be interesting to watch is just simply what the overall turnout is and how that stacks up to other places. If people were ultimately, you know, you know, turned off in some ways, did we, did we not see as many people participate overall in this race than we might've in other special elections? You know, that could also be an indicator of people's disappointment overall if they just didn't end up participating, but but Gene Forte was able to pull it out because he simply has a partisan advantage in the state. 
Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see what happens with Gianforte going forward and how he handles the fallout from, again, having been charged with assaulting a reporter not 24 hours before Election Day. Um, One other point I want to make, though, uh, with regard to what you just said about how Trump is still popular in his base and, and that clearly played a role in this election, the 2018 Senate map is lined up unusually well with what you might call Trump's base around the country in red states, rural states, uh, where Democratic senators are having to defend this uh, this turf that, that Trump totally cleaned up on last time around. Um, on the flip side, they are not Rob Quists, right? They're John Testers. They're people who have been elected before in maybe not quite that bad an environment, but in in you know on this same turf. So it's going to be interesting to see how they handle this. Yeah, I I absolutely agree. I think part of what's going to be interesting to watch is as I mean, this is still early, right? We're still only about six months, five months into the Trump presidency. I think voters are willing to give this guy a shot as as most supporters of a president will in their first term. They want to give him some time to see what he can implement, what he can get across the finish line in Congress, see what sort of achievements he can push through. And uh, certainly they're going to also be watching this health care bill as it moves its way through the House and through, you know, and now through the Senate and what that might do to voters, you know, in particular rural voters and and low income voters and blue collar voters. Those are people who we've seen so far are going to likely be disproportionately affected by by this health care law. And and that may, at the end of the day, have more an impact on on the John Testers and the Heidi Height camps um, than then maybe Trump. But, you know, again, this is sort of we're, we're, we're guessing 18 months out. So it's a little bit difficult to, to forecast already. Those are very smart points and ones that we will definitely be keeping an eye on. All right. I think at this point, we are going to now throw it back in time, back to the studio uh, about 12 hours ago, where uh, we are going to be talking about uh, Trump's foreign trip, although unfortunately taping before he kind of went off on NATO earlier today. But whatever. Sometimes we have to tape before news happens. That's uh, the way it goes. Elena, thank you very much for joining us for this late uh, post-midnight little chat about Montana. Of course. Thanks for having me. All right. And uh, before we move on to our next segment, let's uh, hear from one of our sponsors. All right, before we jump into our second data point, I want to introduce our panel back in the studio. We have with us, as usual, senior politics editor, Charlie Matessian. Hi, Scott. Chief investigative reporter, Ken Vogel. That's me. Hello. And national political reporter, Eliana Johnson. Hey. All right, so our second data point uh, this week is the number five. That's how many countries President Donald Trump is visiting uh, this week during his first foreign trip in office, which wraps up over the weekend. So, Eliana, Where has Trump been? What has he accomplished this week? This was an incredibly ambitious first foreign trip for President Trump, would have been for any president. Um, He went from Riyadh, uh, Saudi Arabia, to Israel, um, touched down in Rome, uh, visited the Vatican and the Pope. He's now in Brussels um, talking to NATO allies, and he will be back in the U.S. um, this weekend. And... I think it's been a remarkably uh, gaff-free and successful trip. 
Uh, he tripped up in Israel when he made a comment about one of the news stories that broke before he left was about his potential, his potentially compromising um, foreign intelligence source and overseas in Israel. He said, you know, he never said the word Israel. The reports had been was that the source, the source was Israeli. And he seemed to confirm that by saying that. But overall, I think it's been a very successful first trip uh, abroad Um they uh, closed a, an arms deal with Saudi Arabia, uh, seemed to reassure Israeli allies. He was became the first president to visit the Western Wall in Israel and uh, now to uh, NATO and, and the G7. It's worth noting that this was the easy part, though. You know, uh, he well received in, in Israel, where he has uh, many friends and has been very supportive, especially after the Obama administration. Saudi Arabia, he gets a reception fit for a king. I mean, literally, he has his image projected on the side uh, of his <laughs> hotel. I mean, uh, and you know, that stuff really speaks to him. Uh, it really makes a big difference. So, you know, that went really well. Uh, I, I would say what was surprising to me was that he got out of the Vatican unscathed. Uh, I mean, after all, that was... Uh, sort of loaded with uh, potential gaff uh, material. Uh, obviously, he and the Pope don't see eye to eye on many issues. The Pope has been trolling him almost nonstop since the campaign trail, but he got out of there. Uh, so I, I would note, Charlie, that this administration and this president have uh, not shown themselves to be above screwing up the easy things. <laughs> so, um, you know, I think this, the speech on Islam in Saudi Arabia was well received and it got high marks from uh, foreign policy wonks who in the past have been cr very critical of this president. But uh, your point is well taken. But so is yours. I mean, I, I, I think you're right about the, the speech, uh, although I would note my, my personal hobby horse here, which is the spelling mistakes. I mean, there is the Trump administration has launched a war on spelling and you see it all the time in all their documents and press releases. And I did note that in one press release they talked about, rather than spelling peace, they wrote peach. I mean, these are official documents <laughs> of the United States government. Come on. Although it is more notable, Charlie, on the language front that uh, Trump initially in his scripted remarks avoided saying a phrase that he excoriated both Barack Obama and Secretary of State Hillary Clinton for not saying radical Islamic terrorism. He suggested that their avoidance of that phrase meant that they were scared of confronting the problem or offending uh, our Arab allies and we're putting political correctness over uh, a sort of a more aggressive, robust stance against terrorism. He avoided that phrase uh, during his scripted speech, but then he kind of slipped up and said uh, something close to it. He said um, that confronting the crisis of Islamic extremism and the Islamist and Islamic terror of all kinds. That means honestly confronting the crisis of Islamic extremism and the Islamists and Islamic terror of all kinds. Uh, and his aides actually came out subsequently and said, oh, that was just because he was exhausted. He didn't mean to say that. So he, he sort of did a, a full 360, did a 180, and then went 180 back, and then his aides said that was an accident. So he did a 360 plus a 180, I guess. Another bit of, of sort what of... What kind of move is that, Ken? Is that like a triple Lutz? I think that's it. Sal yeah, cam. the official term is like a <laughs> Something from turn. the old Tony Hawk video game. Yeah, that's maybe. what I was looking for. I was yeah. looking for a skateboarding terminology. But uh, revealing my own lack of bona fides as a skateboarder, I uh, couldn't come up with it. So, But more uh, another thing that he's getting some criticism for... Um, 
sort of uh, uh, being criticized as sort of hypocritical for is that uh, the World Bank announced uh, that it would that it and Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates have pledged a combined hundred million dollars towards this plan fund aimed at helping female entrepreneurs around the world, spearheaded by or announced by Ivanka Trump. It looks a lot like what the sort of partnership that the Clinton Foundation did with foreign governments that got so much criticism from Trump. And here's his daughter, Ivanka Trump, traveling with him, uh, you know, on this trip and and, and uh, getting this pledge. Additionally, Trump had criticized Michelle Obama for not wearing a head covering in the Middle East. And and here you had both his wife and his daughter deplaning without the head covering. Well, th- this is one of those things for literally everything that Trump does. There's a tweet somewhere in in his past, like arguing with him in, in the present. Right. Yeah. And, I, you know, it's a little bit cliche, but I think it's worth noting. I mean, we know with so many other politicians, it's like uh uh, uh, you know, a uh, uh, a fixture of political journalism to point out when someone has flip flopped, and here we have examples of it. I'm just I'm just raising these by set, you know, as a way to say that it wasn't like a totally flawless trip. There are nits to pick if you're inclined to nitpick, which you are. I sure uh, enough am. But I do think the point you made about the the use and non-use of the term radical Islamic terror is important because that's something that National Security Advisor H.R. McMaster has been pushing since he arrived at the White House a few months ago, asking Trump to tweak his language on that a little bit so as not to needlessly inflame some of our Muslim allies. And the president made a point in his uh, big speech to the joint session of Congress of saying it anyway. So it is, I think, significant and noteworthy that he omitted it, even if only in his scripted remarks. Um, I think it's unlikely that he, he won't fall back to it in unscripted remarks or when he's tired. But it is, I think, a significant development that he chose to omit it in um, in a scripted speech. And also, you know, our, our colleague Annie Carney noted McMaster's influence in planning uh, this trip along with his deputy national security advisor, Dina Powell. So I do think that goes to show uh, McMaster's influence not only in the in the planning of the trip, but also in its sort of the, the substantive portions. Although, you know, it's also notable that like some of these things where where he is adjusting his rhetoric from the campaign trail to particularly to diplomatic situations is maybe what people were looking for when they questioned whether he could be presidential, that he's saying all these things that are so offensive to our allies. I mean, I think of like, you know, calling China currency manipulator and then turning uh, 180 on that. I think of uh, his his comments about NATO. Uh, which he suddenly, or we'll see, we'll see today whether uh, you know how how uh, warm he is towards NATO. But he certainly backtracked a little bit from that, uh, and so you know maybe it is an example of him actually, uh, you know, becoming more diplomatic in the in his role as sort of the U.S.'s face of the world. Well, I also wonder the extent to which this trip has looked relatively smooth because Trump is as the commander in chief as as the president is the boss on foreign policy in a way that he can't be on domestic policy that has clearly frustrated him over the last few months right on healthcare on tax reform any number of other issues where he has to uh horse trade with congress and has seemed a little surprised at uh certainly in the first go around on the healthcare bill at his inability to move members of the freedom caucus for example he doesn't have to 
uh, he's not constrained by that as much. Obviously, in some senses, he, he still is, but he's not constrained by that nearly as much in his uh, relationships with his meetings with other uh, heads of state, the the way he goes about foreign affairs. That's all true, but we should also keep in mind we should the, the context. I mean, put this in proper context. We are having a discussion about a president, and we are lauding him for accomplishing sort of the basics of of office. We're lauding him for not having huge gaffes, for executing the basics of of diplomacy, and you know it's and defining competency down. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly what we're doing. And at the same time, he is being lauded for a trip in which uh, all the scandals at home didn't intrude. We are we are uh, celebrating the fact that he didn't embarrass us. I mean, and and that really says something about the the administration to date. I would also add that this trip kind of plays into like what he likes about being president. It's the pomp, it's the circumstance, it's the lack of details. It's not the mundane horse trading over, you know, the border adjustment tax or pre-existing conditions or what have you. It's uh it's it's like a lot of photo ops and a lot of, you know, regal presentations. He got to do the sword dance in Saudi Arabia. Like I got this one photo from someone who was inside uh, the bubble there of him holding the sword. And he just had this glow and grit, like big, like Cheshire cat grit on his face. Like that's that's what he enjoys, you know. And so uh, and so, you know, yes, he hasn't. Uh, you know, we may have set a low bar for him that he's managed to clear by not having major guests, but it also plays into like what the guy likes about being president. And it also avoids what he doesn't like. I mean, this is his trip is not about governance. It's about projecting leadership, not necessarily leadership, but it's about projecting leadership. And that is his stock and trade projecting leadership. OK, at the same time, he has shown that He's perfectly capable of screwing these things up, uh, as he did in the Oval Office with uh, Russian officials. And, I mean, nothing's been leaked from this trip, but it does seem that so far this has gone off uh, without a hitch. Well, he hasn't gone to Western Europe yet, so. Yeah, we'll <laughs> I mean, see. We'll, we'll see. <laughs> we'll see what gets leaked out of there. There, there was also – there was a leak from a, a previous conversation with a, a foreign government right. his uh, this week, his conversation with the Good president point, of the Philippines. Scott. Good point, Praising him. Just cut my legs out from under me. <laughs> prosecution. Well, of the wasn't drug on war this trip though. This country, right. Which I, is like we'll state- have to wait at least a month for for the leaks from the foreign leader meetings uh, in private on this trip. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, let's wrap it up there and go from this uh, foreign arena to more domestic affairs. But first, let's hear from one of our sponsors this week. All right. Let's jump into our third segment: the data point four point one trillion dollars. That is the size of President Trump's budget released this week. And while I think it might be the largest data point that we've ever had on the Nerdcast, it also contains a lot of deep cuts uh, to a number of areas such that it is coming in for criticism from members of both parties in Congress. So, Charlie, let's start broad. What is and isn't important about this? Well, it's mostly a symbolic document, so there are limits to the importance of it. But uh, it's still a powerful statement of the president's priorities, and I think uh, ultimately it probably consolidates his standing uh, with conservatives. It gives him fodder for his reelection campaign because, remember, it doesn't really matter what happened. Uh, it, he, you know, the ad doesn't exactly say uh, what happened to the money or where where it went or uh, how the policy was implemented, if if at all. It just says that the president 
uh, did X and committed, you know, all these funds to doing this. And, and that's where the, uh, budget document, uh, comes in. And I think, you know, uh, the important thing to keep in mind is to me, it spoke to conservatives in a way that just, uh, really strengthens his core, strengthens his standing, uh, with the base. And a good example of that would be, you know, just one of them would be the welfare to work requirements. To me, you could hear almost echoes of the, uh, 1990s and the, uh, the Troika of, uh, Republican governors who were, uh, who, who were very involved in, uh, all sorts of, uh, implementation of new welfare to work requirements, whether, you know, the intellectual framework of, of, uh, the Republican gains of, of that era, you know, people like uh, Tommy Thompson, Wisconsin, John Engler in Michigan. But it's also the uh, sort of fiscally conservative uh, arm and money behind the Republican Party right now. I mean, uh, work requirements are like the holy grail of Coke world, uh, the Koch brothers and their advocacy network. Nonetheless, I heard Tim Phillips, uh, the uh, president of Americans for Prosperity, which is one of the lead groups in the Koch network on NPR this morning, talking about how the cuts were not severe enough for Coke world and that wouldn't come close to balancing the budget. Uh, we're piling up debt at a rate we've never seen before. And in many ways, I, I hear liberals saying this is an immoral budget, but what really is immoral is to leave the next generation with debt that they're not going to be able to pay. So, um, you know, it's, it, it, I agree it's a bone to, to the right. Um, it's also notably a departure from some of his campaign trail rhetoric, including the cuts to Medicaid, which is something he said explicitly that he would not do during the campaign. So you see that tension between the way that he campaigned as a populist, anti-establishment nationalist uh, with sort of, you know, some some sort of uh, democratic tendencies and uh, behind some of his economic policies or at least populist um, and uh, and how he's governing, which is trying to appease the conservative base. So I do think it's important to note that there are a lot of conservative critics of this budget. Uh, it doesn't allow the rebuilding of the Navy that uh, that Trump promised on the campaign trail. And the administration um, is also saying that the $2 trillion um, projected revenue from the tax cuts, um, that they're claiming that the largest tax cuts in history are also going to produce $2 trillion in, in revenue. And they're saying they're going to use that to balance the budget. At the same time, they're saying that they're going to uh, use that to reduce the debt. Uh, you either have to do one or the other. And the administration really hasn't been able to reconcile their argument on that front. And the administration is is also saying that, you know, he wants to increase spending. The president wants to increase spending on defense and things are going to be, I think, pretty tight. Essentially, we have a budget that can't be paid for. And it really is just a, a symbolic document in that regard. I was also a little surprised that it was not necessarily a great budget for rural and small town America. Whether yeah. you're talking about uh, the Medicaid cuts or ag subsidies. Uh, and, and that was a little bit surprising to me. How much of that is is due to the fact that while this budget has the imprimatur of the Trump administration, the Trump White House, the process is being run by former Congressman Mick Mulvaney, now the Office of Management and Budget Director, and previously one of the biggest kind of Tea Party fiscal hardliners in Congress. Eliana? You know, I think this is going to set up a real battle in Congress between um, fiscal hawks and defense hawks. Um, and Trump campaigned as more of a defense hawk than a fiscal hawk, and yet he appointed a fiscal hawk in Mick Mulvaney to run his Office of Management and bu Budget. I think that's why you're going to hear uh, a number of complaints from defense hawks who 
Um, the budget offers an increase in defense spending and yet a number of cuts in other areas. And there's really no way to do both of those things. That's such an interesting point. I've been looking at it uh, a different way, just focused mainly on Mulvaney uh, himself. You know, as I was thinking about this coming in today, it occurred to me that district that he came from, the fifth district of South Carolina, Frank Underwood's district in, <laughs> of cards. No, but that district has probably done more to shape fiscal priorities and and the uh, United States budget than any other district in the country. Because remember, the guy that Mulvaney knocked off to win that seat was John Spratt, the uh, serious, the very serious conservative Democrat uh, who was chairman of the budget committee. Uh, and and he's, he's sort of Mulvaney is a fascinating character because he was not an original Trumper. Uh, he, you know, he was a Rand Paul guy uh, at first. And, uh, you know, to me, in, in some ways, he does. He's not a great fit for the Trump administration. But in other ways, he is when he when he got up there. Uh, I thought he I, I think he's a, an excellent communicator uh, in a lot of ways. And I thought when he appeared uh, at the the uh, the presser with uh, Spicer the first time, I thought he made uh, Spicer look like the junior varsity. He was so much more effective. Uh, there and and I think Mulvaney brings some cred, you know, some street cred to the administration as a founding member of the uh, Freedom Caucus. And, and the, the administration has used him as a a, a go between to send me- to send messages to the Freedom Caucus, right? Right. And and the other thing about Mulvaney is keep in mind that he is a guy who understands uh, the politics of the budget as well. You know, he understands the the squealing that's going to come out of Congress about this. You know, he's lived that, uh, and he's and he's okay with it. You know, he's very familiar with how Congress is going to react. He's also, though, <laughs> he may have uh, some political chops, but his uh, accounting chops are being questioned over this double counting of growth in in the budget. Uh, they're using, they're saying that they're going to have three percent economic growth, which will allow them to reach a balanced budget in ten years. But they're also saying. They're counting the uh, revenues that would come from that 3% growth uh, to explain how they would be able to deeply cut taxes without reducing federal revenues. So get a lot of heat for the double the, count. Yeah, that's so that's the point I was trying to make. They have to choose one or the other. And the, the other thing that's problematic, I think, is, um, you know, they're saying that uh, that the budget is is revenue neutral and. Um, there is an argument to be made that there is some growth effect for tax cuts, but it's not a one-to-one ratio in that if you cut somebody's taxes $2,000, they will produce a $2,000 growth effect. Um, and the Trump budget has something like a double growth effect where for a tax cut of $2,000, you'll get a $4,000 uh, revenue growth. And so I think the numbers don't add up in this budget. It's going to prove problematic um, in that. But that being said, it's it's Congress that writes the budget. It'll, it'll be interesting to see, I think, uh, what Congress does with this set of priorities that's given to it by the administration. I have a feeling that the budget we get um, for, that we get from Congress will be uh, more muscular in, in defense. And uh, I don't see entitlement cuts uh, necessarily coming from Congress. It's also worth noting that uh, Mulvaney recognizes very well that uh, budget sleight of hand is sort of par for the course. Yeah. And the other thing he understands is that there's not a single American in the United States who will vote in 2020 uh, that will cast their vote based on whether or not there was budget gimmickry involved here. That said, Charlie, you know, when we talk about, oh, this doesn't matter, I do think um, it, it could be a potent political tool for Democrats and for some Republicans. It gives them fodder to use against the Trump administration by pointing to this document and saying, this is what Republicans want to do. True. The pri- priorities matter. Right. Uh, yeah, I, I, I don't dispute that. 
Uh, speaking of the uh, ammunition to use against the Trump administration, uh, another bit of fiscal news in D.C. this week. The Congressional Budget Office released its long-awaited projections about the effects of the House Republican health care bill that passed earlier this month. Uh, here are some top lines via uh, Joanne Kennan, our uh, health care editor at Politico. 14 million fewer insured after one year, 23 million over 10, uh, $834 million cut from Medicaid, a mixed bag on premiums, uh, both uh, immediately and over time, but in general higher for old, older people and uh, over $660 million of Obamacare taxes repealed. Charlie, does this document, this analysis that the bill passed without but has now come out, does does this change anything about the politics surrounding the healthcare debate or does it kind of cement in what we already, what was already in place? I don't think it really dramatically changes the landscape uh, in any way because in, in, I think lots of folks sort of bake this in to begin with. Uh, so I don't think it changes the underlying politics uh, of, of the bill, but it just, but to me, uh, looking at the CBO number, it reminded me that it underscored just how tough it's going to be in the Senate. Uh, for passage. And I think we overlook that here. You're talking about uh, very different constituencies and members uh, that are going to have to explain this. Uh, and it's not going to be nearly as easy for members of the House to explain their constituents. And it wasn't easy for them. Within minutes of the CBO score coming out, we had two Senate Republicans uh, raising concerns about about it and about the bill that uh, is the starting point for their work. Had Dean Heller, uh, who's ex- one of the few who's expected to face a tough reelection contest in 2018, said the House bill does not do enough to address Nevada's Medicaid population or protect Nevadans with pre-existing conditions. And then you have Bill Cassidy, uh, Louisiana, uh, also criticizing the House bill for failing to adequately protect Americans with pre-existing conditions. So that's just a starting point. And you see, as they try to make adjustments to uh, satisfied members of their own conference, how they're, it's it's going to be a juggling act. I think it means that the bill that we'll see come out of the reconciliation process will look a lot more moderate than the bill that, that we saw come out of the House. I think the, the one thing that it, maybe not changing but prolonging or intensifying on the political side is just the amount of pressure that House Republicans are under. And I mean, we talked about it at the top of the show, but we saw it a little bit uh, in Montana on Wednesday, right, where a, a reporter uh, was asking Greg Gianforte, the special election candidate there, uh, about this CBO score, and Gianforte just totally blew up and attacked him. I'm sick and tired of you guys. The last guy that came here, you did the same thing. You were the guardian? Yes, and you just body slammed me and broke my glasses. And keep in mind, he, he's the perfect example of uh, the difficulty of repeal and replace politics uh, because this was his his second episode. I mean, he didn't body slam anyone before the way he did uh, the other night when he body slammed. First the episode didn't make so many headlines, it shall we say. It didn't, but didn't, it sh- didn't punch through. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, that first episode, uh, which people probably aren't familiar with, was he got in a little bit of hot water because he was caught praising the AHCA. Uh, to Washington lobbyists on the same day that he refused to take a public position on it. So, you know, the politics are really tricky. And uh, and I think the, Gianforte is the poster child for that. Also, just good political rule of thumb, don't body slam reporters. Politics are tricky, but try not to do that. Yes, it's very sage advice for any aspiring politicians we we might have among the Nerdcast listenership. Uh, all right, I think we can leave it there for this week. Thank you all once again. Thank you, Charlie. Thanks, Scott. 
Ken, thank you. I enjoyed it, and I'm glad that no one body slammed Charlie. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Eliana. Good time, as always. And thank you, as always, to our listeners. Remember, email questions, if you have them, to nerdcast at politico.com. Subscribe, rate us, and write written reviews on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. And remember that survey we've been talking about, politico.com slash podcast survey. If you're a fan of the Nerdcast, we'd love to hear what you like about the show. And the feedback is really going to help us improve this podcast and create more and better podcasts for the rest of Politico. All right. Once again, thank you to our listeners. Thank you to executive producer Bridget Mulcahy, our illustrator Bill Cookman, and Politico web producer and Nerdcast researcher Zach Montalaro. We will talk to you again next week.